Where Kindness Lives is designed to cultivate a kinder world by helping to inform and inspire. Hosted by Jenny Sager, head of Nextdoor Australia, the neighbourhood network connecting you to what truly matters so you can belong. We'll chat to the most thought-provoking individuals paving the way to positive change and hear from neighbours who deliver small acts of kindness every day. So come on a journey to Where Kindness Lives. Hi, I'm Jenny Sager, and today my guest pulled up in his big red car. Or at least I was kind of hoping he would. Original Yellow Wiggle Greg Page really truly doesn't need an introduction, but there's so much more to him than just his yellow skivvy, hot potato, and the monkey dance. Greg Page, so good to see you again. Yes. So to kick it off, we always start by asking, what does kindness mean to you? Well, kindness means a number of things to me, and I, I guess my main thought about kindness is that I think we need to be a lot kinder to ourselves in order to be kinder to others. And I think the ideal of kindness and and being kind to others really starts from within. And if you can't be kind to yourself, it's very hard to be kind to others. So true. And I want to talk a little bit later about how you are actually kind to yourself too. But, you know, when we think about the Wiggles, the Wiggles spread joy to people all over the world. They still are, but you were there from the beginning. You were spreading happiness and joy to everyone all over the world. I actually, when I was living in New York City, I was working for MTV and our office was in Times Square. And we were working with the NYPD and trying to get permits to have Rihanna actually play in in Times Square and Justin Bieber. And I'll never forget, they said to me, oh, you know, nothing is going to be as crazy as it was here when the Wiggles played Times Square. And that was when they told me that when the Wiggles played Times Square, it was crazier than when the Beatles played Times Square, which is unbelievable. And I have to say at the time I had no kids when I was living there. And I had all these friends, when you guys were going back to New York, ringing me and saying, hey, you lived in Australia. Do you have any connections? Can you get us tickets to the Wiggles? And I was like, what is the deal with this? Like, all my friends are ringing about this and everyone, I just, I can't sum up. Everyone in Australia knows how massive they were and still are. But what was it like for you to be spreading that joy and happiness on a daily basis? It was amazing. It was incredible because... Not only did we get to do something day in, day out that we passionately loved, but we could see the positive effects it was having on other people. So to be in that privileged position for, well, I was there for about 16 years of my life and that the brand's been going for 30 years now and into their 31st year, it's really, it is a phenomenon. And, you know, I've got to take my hat off to Anthony Field, who's still there in the blue skivvy to, to this very day. And probably very much the reason why the brand is still in existence because he is such a creative genius. Um, but, and I guess this goes back to how the Wiggles began it. And it began because we were passionate about what we did. We weren't into making money. That was just a, a side effect. And I think that that's why he's still there because he just genuinely loves doing it. It's not about commercialization or money or anything. I'm sure he doesn't mind those side benefits, but because we were teachers, we were passionate about trying to share what we could with children and try to make, it sounds like a cliche, but make the world a better place. It must have been amazing to look out and see all these smiling faces. Like I took my youngest to a Wiggles concert a couple of years ago. He was like many kids, completely obsessed with the Wiggles. And he literally just sat there the whole time, ear to ear smile, dancing. Was there a moment when you were performing when you went, 
that it kind of clicked and you just went, my gosh, like we are actually making people happy and joyful. And I think it was this, just this collective feeling of joy between them and us. It wasn't like, it wasn't like we were observing the audience as a separate entity. It was just this vibe in the room of joy. And it was just this buzz of everybody being a part of it. And I think that's the, the thing I liked most about the Wiggles was it wasn't about the audience or it wasn't about us. It was about everybody in the room together creating this feeling or this energy that was just joy, happiness, uh, freedom, innocence, love of music. And, you know, to see the whole room bouncing up and down to a song we do called The Monkey Dance, that's just incredible. So, yeah, it was this amazing feeling that is really hard to describe. And it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't about making the audience happy or making them feel something. It was just about providing the inspiration or the the conduit for them to get to that place, but we were all on the same journey. I'm sure there were times on the road where it could be tough or, or lonely or really homesick. You know, at Nextdoor, we see so many people using the platform to combat loneliness and social isolation. Can you share a story from, it doesn't have to be from the Wiggles, of how or when loneliness touched your life? Um, look, touring could be very lonely. Uh, I mean, even though there were a good number of people on the road, there were times when there would be friction amongst the group for whatever reason. And, you know, there might be 20 people on the road or you might just be really tired and not up for socialising with the other people in the group. And you would spend time in your room and you would feel disconnected. And I think that, um, you know, for me, loneliness is epitomised by disconnection from other people and from society. And, you know, you're in a town you don't know, you've never been there before, you don't know where to go and what to do to sort of fill your time. You're tired, you're feeling a little bit run down and that loneliness kind of kicks in. So nobody, I guess, everybody is prone to feeling lonely at some time. And I think it's how you deal with that emotion of loneliness, that feeling of isolation or disconnectedness that can really make the difference between, you know, picking yourself back up or perhaps, you know, spiralling downward and, and not getting out of it. And how do you deal with that? How did you personally combat that? Uh, I think I'm, I'm very lucky in that I'm a, a very positive sort of person. So if I get into those states or those feelings, I don't stay there too long. Um, but I, I know that for some people it's very hard and I, I think it's it's a matter of, for me, refocusing, you know, re, reshifting your focus onto the positive things and, and not focusing on the fact that you're feeling a certain way. Because um, loneliness it can be brought on by situations, but loneliness isn't necessarily a situation. So plenty of people can be on their own and be perfectly happy, but some people aren't. It's that emotion that, or that feeling that's connected to that situation that becomes a problem. So if you can shift your focus from what you feel and what, you're, what you feel you're experiencing, shift it to something else and try and you know, stay focused on that positive thing. You know, glass is half full. <laughs> Try and look at those kinds of situations. And, and you know, I, I think that can play a big part in, in helping people get through those times. Definitely. And we always try to explain that there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. Yeah. And you can certainly choose to be alone. I yeah. mean, we both have kids, several kids. Yeah. And sometimes, like, having a little bit of alone time <laughs> is a really you good thing. You need it. Thing, yeah. so. I, I think everybody does, no matter who you are. I think 
you know, introvert, extrovert, whatever personality type you might be, I think everybody needs that alone time to recharge and, and just connect with yourself. I think being in touch with who you are is the most important life skill that we can have because until you really connect with who you are, you can be out doing whatever you want to do, being amongst other people and I guess those kinds of connections that you're having are kind of superficial connections until you really connect with who you are. What's it like for you in your own neighborhood, in your own community? Are you, you know, do your neighbors know you? Can you be that person that's around the community or do you find it difficult to kind of get out and about? No, I I love getting out and about and I'm always out and about in the community, either walking for exercise and health reasons or up at the shops and yeah, people see me all the time. I think in our area, we have a very good community. It's um, a suburban part of Northwest Sydney where um, you know, you've got your residential lots where people look after their homes and take care and look after each other. And I think there's a, there is a strong sense of community, even though we don't have a lot of sort of community activities. There's a lot of um, that sort of community spirit there that looks after one another and say good day to each other at the shops. And maybe that's possibly more so because people tend to know who I am more than, you know, a Joe Blow from down the street, let's say. But yeah, everybody's always willing to have a smile and a bit of a chat. And I think you can really feel that in a community and and it's so important. You know, I moved recently and one of my neighbors has been mowing my lawn. He never asked him to, but he just pops out and mows my lawn every few weeks. And it's those little things that really make a huge difference. And so it doesn't have to be that you're super involved in the community, but it is the little chats every now and then and saying hello. And Yeah, I think and. Similar story to what you just said about the lawn, right? We've got this little strip across the road from us that's a, a big nature strip. And uh, after I had a cardiac arrest two years ago, one of the neighbours mowed our section out the front of our place. So then when I got well again, I mowed his section as well and then it extended down, another guy did it. And so I now mow one, two, three, I mow four sections of nature strip now um, just to help out, which I, th- I think is great. And it's really interesting the number of people that walk past on the walking track there as I'm mowing that whole section and they say, I hope the council are paying you to do this. <laughs> it's like, well, no, they're not, but I just like doing it because, you know, as you walk past, you see it's well kept and it just adds to the community spirit, I think. You mentioned your cardiac arrest, which mm-hmm. I can't believe has been two years already. Yeah. It- definitely for me feels like it was yesterday. I, I don't know for you, it feels like yesterday or it feels like it was 10 years ago. Um, but I know you've been asked so many times to tell that story. When you look back on it, like what, what stands out to you? Wow. Uh, a lot stands out. It's, it's interesting. The last few weeks I've probably been not focusing on, but just getting reminded of those last few breaths that I took, which was really, I guess, um, because my wife's a cardiac nurse, we, we tend to talk a lot about the heart and these kinds of things at home and probably too much about cardiac arrests, unfortunately. But um, in the last few weeks, it's, it's just kind of been that recollection of just lying there and remembering those last few breaths before I went blank. Um, but I think the biggest thing that's struck me from it is just how passionate now I feel about sharing the story so that we can save more lives because I, I still can't believe that the survival rate is so low. So I guess if that's the, the thing that strikes me the most about it is the survival rate, I, I think that, that would have to be what I say, that 10% of people surviving a sudden cardiac arrest is just not good enough in 
21st century Australia. And just to be clear, this was not something that ran in your family, right? This was, which I think is so important that people understand that. Yeah. So I guess in my specific situation, I had heart disease that I wasn't aware of. So I was undiagnosed. I didn't have high blood pressure. I didn't have high cholesterol. I didn't have family history. I'm not a smoker. I was a little bit overweight, but not obese. Um, So I didn't really have the sort of typical risk factors that a doctor or a GP would say, hey, you know what, you should probably go to the next level and do some extra tests. In fact, my cardiologist said if he had have seen me the morning of that show that I did before I went into cardiac arrest, he would not have picked up anything. So, yeah, the scary part is that for 50% of people that have a cardiac arrest out of hospital, they don't know that they're at risk of having one. And we've obviously done a lot of research at Next Door into Loneliness and the connection between physical health and mental health. And when you actually look at the stats around loneliness, which in Australia used to be one in every four Australians said they were lonely multiple times a week, it's actually now around one in every two after COVID. And there's a direct correlation between loneliness and negative effects on uh, physical health, like your heart health and things like that. How do you see that connection between physical health and mental health? And also, I know you are so involved at really trying to drive community awareness for AD and also cardiac arrest and, and heart health. Why is that community piece important to you? Well, we'll just go back to the uh, correlation between physical and, and mental health. I think there is a, a correlation there for sure. And I think it's it's been well documented over the years that stress can play a major part in, in being a risk factor for heart disease and probably cardiac arrest. So, you know, what the mechanisms are around that, I'm not fully versed in that, but I know that there are those links. And I think then to the community piece, certainly when it comes to the mission of what I'm doing now in terms of raising awareness, 80% of cardiac arrests happen in the home. So, you know, that's around 21,000 to 22,000 cardiac arrests every year. And when you think that the survival rate overall is only 10%, but the survival rate for those 20% that happen outside of the home is actually around 50%, that means the survival rate for those 21,000 or 22,000 that happen in the home is very low because the main reason why people will survive a sudden cardiac arrest is access to an AED or defibrillator. So if you don't have access to an AED, your chance of surviving is much, much less. In the home, not many people have an AED nearby. There might be one at your local Coles or Woolies or somewhere like that, but the time to travel to get there and come back with it, by the time you do that, the the person who's in cardiac arrest will probably be what they call not shockable. So, yeah, community understanding about the issue is probably the very first step towards increasing the survival rate because the more people that we have understanding what the problem is and what the solution is, then we can go to that next step of saying, well, here's a solution of getting AEDs into the community, having one nearby so that if somebody goes into cardiac arrest, they've got a greater chance of surviving. If we go back to your own personal experience, it was actually bystanders who saved your life. So Take us through that moment, but also can you just talk about the training and if you're somebody in the community who actually wants to get an AED and, or drive change in your area and, and make sure it's placed at, you know, a local scout building or somewhere, you know, a library or a park, how you go about doing that and making sure that there are trained people in your neighborhood to use it? So, yeah, the, the reason why I survived was because of bystander intervention. So they recognized that I was not breathing. And when somebody's not responding and not breathing, then you've got to start CPR. So they started CPR straight away. 
And luckily there was an AED nearby. And so they used the AED, even though they'd never used one before. So, uh, you know, it's been widely reported that a nurse saved my life with an AED. And yes, she, she is a nurse, but even though she's a nurse, she had never used one of these AEDs before. So you don't have to be trained to, to do CPR or to use an AED. And that's something I didn't know either. And I often think back that had it been reversed that night, had it been somebody else that needed to be resuscitated, I would not have known what to do and I would have freaked out thinking, gee, you know, I, I can't do anything because I'm not trained. And that's just not true. So, yeah, it's a really powerful but simple thing to do. And if communities do want to get involved, then, I mean, they can reach out to Heart of the Nation and they can get involved. We've got a program called Heart of the Nation Communities where we are saying, if your community wants to get an AED, we'll help you. We'll provide you a fundraising platform where you can get, you know, 20 or 40 neighbours together and chip in 60 bucks each to get an AED and you'll get the AED, a cabinet, a tracking device for the AED for security purposes. You get training on how to use it all and we'll support you the whole way through. So it's, it's a really good program that gives communities the skills and the tools that they need to save the life of somebody in cardiac arrest. back to kindness mm -hmm. when you think about someone obviously besides the nurse who saved your life <laughs> who's been kind to you in your lifetime whether it was 20 years ago or now um who comes to mind it's interesting you know as you were asking that question the, the one of the first people that popped into my mind for whatever reason was my year 11 and 12 science teacher yeah mr stanfield and I don't know, it's just one of those things, an odd, an odd thing about Mr. Stanfield. When I moved to Dural in the northwest of Sydney, I found out that he lived like literally five houses down the street from me. And he must have found out that I was living there or something, I can't remember, but we got in touch. And I told him, I said, you know, you might not hear this from many students, but you had a big impact on me as a, as a person growing up because he was somebody, you'd come into his classroom and you'd always feel welcomed and he was warm, he was kind, he was always smiling and it just made you feel like a, a valued person. And I guess in those times of when you're a teenager growing up through high school, you are struggling with a lot of things about who you are and where you fit in and to know that in his class you fit in no matter who you were was a great feeling and that always stuck with me. So one thing that we always do on this podcast is share a neighbor story that's happened recently. I want to talk to you today about a neighbor named Bev. So she had a nasty fall on a morning walk and fractured her left arm. She was forced to wear a sling for six weeks, and she says she literally couldn't wash her hands. Every single thing she did was so painful. I actually was living near Bev at the time, so I saw her post on next door, and she, she, she said... I'm actually kind of really embarrassed to put this out there, but I've fallen, I've fractured my arm, I need help with my cat, I can't even open a can of cat food. Mm -hmm. And I was watching this happen and I saw the most incredible response from neighbors, but I want to play you some video that yeah. we had with Bev so you can see. Within 10 minutes, I think over 20 people responded and it was just unconditional incredibly warm-hearted response and whether it was I've got a car I can take you wherever you need to go I have a cat I can come to your cat litter I'm a nurse I can help it was just I mean it was overwhelming actually 
What do you think when you see a story like that? It's really touching, isn't it, to, to know that when somebody's in need, they can reach out to the community and find that person that they need to fulfil whatever it is that they need done, whether it's changing the sling, feeding the cats, emptying the cat litter, feeding the cats, whatever it might be. And I think that's so inspirational for the human race with so much that's going on in the world at the moment um, to hear those kinds of stories and know that there is that kind of kindness that exists in community. It's really, really um, heartening. It is, isn't it? It's my, my favourite part about working at Nextdoor is, is seeing all the stories like that. What's your advice to people as far as spreading that kindness through their community? If there's somebody who hasn't necessarily started doing that yet, how can they easily get involved and start sharing that spirit? Well, I think there's a number of ways that pe people with that community mind can get out there and be proactive in the community. Obviously, through next door is a great way because there, there's many stories like Bev's where people are in need of help, but they're too proud or too shy or too, um, you know, there's barriers for that person in terms of wanting to reach out. But if we can promote the fact that there are people out in the community that want to help, that want to do good things for other people, whether it's help with their shopping or help with the lawn, help with the gardening, help run the kids around or something like that, whatever it might be, there's so many ways that people need help in the community. So put yourself out there and just get involved in something that can actually give back and help others because when you hear stories like Bev's, where the, the gratitude and the appreciation is there, you know that you're doing something really powerful, however small it might seem at the time. You know, we, we spoke about the Wiggles before and seeing that room full of people. Sure, that was very powerful, but those one-on-one -on -one connections with, with a neighbour can be so much more powerful. Okay, favourite Wiggles song that you ever performed or sang or listened to, what would it be? Gosh, that's a tough one. One of my favourites is Can You Point Your Fingers and Do the Twist? Yeah, I always enjoy doing that on stage. Uh, another favourite would be the monkey dance and, of course, who can go past hot potato? I knew you were going to say that. I thought hot potato was going to It has to get a mention, right? <laughs> so funny. My gosh. Every child has a different favourite song. Yeah. Okay. Um, I also heard through the grapevine that you are a massive Elvis fan. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. And apparently you at one stage you had like the fourth largest Elvis collection in the world? Yeah, look, apparently, who, who knows? But, yeah, look, I started collecting Elvis artefacts and memorabilia, gosh, probably 17 years ago or so, maybe, maybe a bit more. But um, it, it stemmed from a visit that I made to Graceland back in the days when the Wiggles were on tour. And it was a day off in Memphis and I was looking forward to just sitting in my hotel room doing what we were talking about before, just taking it easy and recovering. But Anthony Field, who's a bigger Elvis fan than I am, said, we're in Memphis, we've got a day off, we're going to pay homage to the king, we're going to Graceland. So I went to Graceland with all the other Wiggles in the cast and I found another side to Elvis that I didn't know existed. And at that point of time in, in my life, I kind of resonated with some of the stuff that happened in Elvis's life. And that was this um, disparity between, I guess, the feeling that you have on stage when you're playing to a, a big audience and you're getting that buzz of energy. And then you come off stage and things in your own life aren't quite right. And I think Elvis felt that, you know, in his relationship with Priscilla and he couldn't quite get things right in his own life. 
And then the fact that he was so philanthropic too, I had no idea just how much money he gave away to charities and how many people he helped out, you know, how many Cadillacs he bought for people that he didn't even know. And so some of his stories just blew me away. So finding out more about who he was behind the scenes just made me want to investigate his life more. And then it just happened I was on the Gold Coast one day walking past a memorabilia shop. I saw a cheque that was signed by Elvis. I bought that and then that started me on a journey of purchasing more things that Elvis owned and then setting up my own museum here in Australia in parks where they have the Elvis Festival every year. And I've had that museum there for about 14 years now. So this is probably a good segue to the final question that we ask all of our guests. If you could have a small dinner party, just five people, dead or alive, who would those dinner guests be? Um, Now I'm wondering, would Elvis actually make the cut? I don't know. Uh, yeah, look, that's a very good question. I, I don't know. That's This dinner party question is always a bit of an odd one for me to, to think about. Um, gosh. I always say, if people do ask me this question, that I'd love to just have dinner with my wife because we don't get a chance to have dinner alone very often. So that would be my first choice. Um, second choice, uh, look... Somebody else who I'm really in awe of is Elton John. Uh, you know, I'd love to just meet Elton John and, you know, ha- have his ear for a moment to, to ask questions and find out a bit more about his life and his journey. I think there's so much there. I feel like I have to ask you, what are you listening to right now? What's the music you're listening to right now? Um, I love listening to The King, of course, John Denver. I love, you know, and I think, oh, yeah, as I go through these artists now I go back and think about their music Neil Diamond Glenn Campbell and there's something about those songs from those that that era probably the the 70s into the 80s something about those songs that for me just connect me to a time in my life where you know exploring music listening to music growing up on music just resonates with me and I think for a lot of people music is that powerful tool that can connect you with emotions and I think a lot of that stuff that I listened to was that kind of positive, upbeat, happy kind of music. Beautiful Noise by Neil Diamond. I just love that song. I think it's so uplifting and powerful about the, the sounds of life. And if you listen to the sounds of life that he describes in the, the song, it's just really, really interesting. So listen to life and, and get high on life. Jeez, I don't think we could end it on a, on a better note than that. Now I will forever always think of you when I hear that song, oh, by the good. way. Um, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're super busy to chat with us. And thank you for all the tireless work you're doing in communities across Australia. Um, definitely, do you want to give the website for Heart of the Nation? Yep, www.heartofthenation.com.au. Excellent. Thank you so much, Greg. Thanks, Jenny. 